Right now, the topic is, will there be war with China? How soon? Someday, there might be another set of questions. Can we win a war with China? If so, how? Today, I sit down with Michael Pillsbury, Senior Fellow for China Strategy at the Heritage Foundation and co-author of the new report, Winning the New Cold War, a plan for countering China. Dozens of laws to counter the CCP threat have been proposed in recent years, but how many have actually been passed and implemented? If you just watch television, you see all these members of the House and Senate bragging about their new legislation. So of course I would think and others would think, we're doing a lot to stop the Chinese. What if it's not true? This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. Michael Pillsbury, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thank you very much. So let's, let's start with the hard stuff first. You said yesterday on stage, I'm here, here at the mm -hmm. Heritage 50th Anniversary Leadership Summit, and you said you expect war with China sometime this century. When exactly do you expect this to happen? Well, this is a highly speculative topic. Mm -hmm. When the panel moderator, who is a 33-year-old uh, talk show host uh, who specializes in domestic issues, she thought she would ask the panelists, is war coming for sure or not? But then here's the key thing. She wanted a yes or no answer. I couldn't say no. There's no chance of war with China. So I chose yes. But obviously nothing's inevitable. There are various ways to deter a war. And also the definition of war varies from a really small incursion or incident, a few people killed, seize fire, it doesn't happen, to a real war like World War II would go on for three years. Now in war games inside the US government, when I was a government official, I was in many, many war games involving China. And always to get the game started, you assume a war breaks out. So to me, it's not shocking to say whether to say yes or no, will there be a war with China. There are a variety of wars with China that could happen. There are a number of programs to stop or prevent from happening those different wars. This is a business many people are in, in Washington, both at CIA and in the Pentagon, and to some degree, White House planning takes place, where we think about imaginary scenarios just to see if we can challenge ourselves to one that might happen that we hadn't even thought of. And frankly, the reason for that is so often in the real world, things happen nobody expected. Hmm. Nobody expected. The origins of World War I, now referred to as sleepwalking into war, happened because of some random incidents and then the countries involved not understanding what each other might do a very high level of suspicion, mobilization, trains being loaded with weapons and soldiers. Pretty soon millions of people are dead. And nobody anticipated this particular incident that triggered World War I. Same thing with World War II. Everybody after World War II said, well, why didn't we do this? When Hitler announced, I'm going to fortify the Rhineland. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. They were violations of the Versailles Peace Treaty from World War I. But at the time, people thought Hitler was bluffing, or he would stop at just one step. He never killed anybody. He peacefully occupied these places. 30 years later, historians dug out the debate in London, in Paris, even Washington, DC. What were Hitler's intentions? Why did World War II begin? 
And one of the discoveries historians have made is very similar to World War I. The events that happened were not anticipated. Hitler kept saying, I want peace. I'm only taking these steps with my army to get peace. So we have something like that happening with China now. It's very difficult to imagine how might a war with China break out. Is this something we can anticipate? So the office I worked in the Pentagon for many years, net assessment it's called, and also the intelligence community with war games, tries to anticipate wars that we haven't thought of and then ask ourselves, do we have a strategy to deter or prevent this war from happening? And secondly, if such a thing does happen, are we going to win or not? So for me, this is very, very routine to talk about war, how to plan it, how to prevent it, what happens, the history of wars over the last 500 years. But you can see a 33-year-old TV podcast lady might find it quite shocking that someone says, yes, a war with China is quite possible, even very likely. Now, she didn't go into, she said she didn't have time. She didn't go into exactly what kind of war do you think is the most likely, and will we win that war? This is considered to be not part of current uh, journalistic coverage of China. Right now, the topic is, will there be war with China? How soon? Someday, there might be another set of questions. Can we win a war with China? If so, how? Well, you've, you've done a great job at proposing the question I should ask you. Uh -huh. <laughs> no, but in all, in all seriousness, because this is, a, this is actually my next question. What kind of a war would this be? And this is something we've talked about in, mm -hmm. in, in our past discussions. And you know, is this a war that the US can actually be victorious in? It depends on the quality of strategy the US brings to the war. We have certain advantages in terms of economy, experience in war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, but we have certain major disadvantages, one of which is distance, that it's up to 10,000 miles away from our best ports, our munition storage areas, our bomber bases, to get over near China, whether it's to defend Korea, to defend India, to defend Taiwan. We have a huge disadvantage that it takes our forces two or three weeks to sail there. It, it takes them a 24 hours to fly there. The Chinese are right there. So quick action to seize something, a piece of Indian territory, uh, do something involving Taiwan. They have a series of islands around Taiwan that have been attacked in the past before. So China has the advantage for a short war that involves short distances close to China something that's over within three or four days. And the Chinese simply announce, we've done this, please don't overreact, uh, and we'll be happy to debate this with you in the UN Security Council, where we Chinese have veto power. That's one kind of war where I'm implying that we would probably lose. And it's the topic of a very interesting book called The Strategy of Denial by Elbridge Colby. In chapter 10 of that book, he goes into detail. He's a former Pentagon official for a few years. So it's important to know what his thesis is. He says Taiwan would probably fall. It would collapse within, say, a week of combat. 
So there would be 50,000 or 100,000 Chinese PLA troops on Taiwan. Should we Americans surrender? He says, no, this is a great opportunity for us. We can land our own forces, link up with whatever's left of the Taiwan forces, and then in a kind of guerrilla warfare movement, we can force the PLA off of Taiwan and return to the mainland. I'm summarizing about a 30-page description. He then says, this will be a good thing, because right now most countries in Asia want to hedge their bets. They're all on the fence. They want to be friends with America. They want to be friends with China. But according to Mr. Colby's argument, when the Asian leaders see that China has attacked Taiwan and occupied half of it, and they see that America is fighting back, they will then be galvanized. They will see for the first time just how evil communist China is. And they'll stop being fence sitters. They'll stop hedging. They'll join our new coalition. And they will have a whole new world in which we're taking the China threat more seriously. I, I interviewed him once on the TV myself. I commend people to buy his book and read chapter 10. It's quite fascinating that someone thinks this way. Now notice what his answer would be. He might avoid answering yes or no as war coming, but it certainly has devoted a lot of thinking to the contingency where we can't get there in time. We don't store munitions on Taiwan. We have almost no US troops on Taiwan, a few trainers. We don't have exercises with Taiwan. They're a non-country, diplomatically speaking. We don't recognize their government. We don't call them a country. So it's quite a stretch to say, here's this island, 23 million people. Here's how close they are to China, 100 miles. Here's all the forces that could be landed on the island. How are we going to take it back? But at least the Colby book is, is raising the issue publicly. Now, you might say maybe this should just be something that is secret internal planning in the Pentagon because it'll never happen or the chances are a million to one. But he's introduced this subject publicly and then gone around the country making speeches about it. So you can imagine the Chinese reaction to this. It's good news from their point of view. Here's a former American defense official saying the Chinese can capture at least half of Taiwan, if not more. And that all they have to worry about is making sure the Americans don't come and land on Taiwan and start a guerrilla warfare movement to push the PLA off. This might be, sound like good news in Beijing. One thing I focused on is what can we do to make the Chinese leadership think we can't win this war? And that's another whole topic. But the idea of deterring the Chinese leadership gets you into how do they think about war? How do they make calculations about can we win or should we wait another two or three years? And that's the topic of how much they believe politics on Taiwan is in their favor. As long as they believe Taiwan's going in the direction of unification and pro-China forces are becoming president and leading Taiwan, there's no incentive for them to start a war. It'd be idiotic if Taiwan's going in their direction. If Taiwan is going in a different direction, then war becomes the only hope they have of reunifying the island. So this is a complex area where to win a war with China, we have to be able to think through what are our advantages, what are our weaknesses, and how would this war be conducted? 
I know some more games that decided, let's look, unlikely as it is, let's look at a three-year war with China over Taiwan. And the first thing we learned is we run out of ammunition. The US Navy and each one of its submarines, it only has so many torpedoes. And each Navy warship, they have what they call loading. How many of which kind of missile goes into that ship? You can mix different kinds of missiles. So when you make this decision, you just, you're deciding what happens in the first couple of weeks of the war. How many ships can you shoot down of the, on the Chinese side? What will happen to our side? There's a very scary RAND Corporation report, highly recommended by me, 2015. It's called the Military Scorecard. It shows how the balance of power between Washington, D.C. and Beijing has shifted in almost every category. We do worse and worse and worse over the last 30 years. So one of the worst cases is a long war where we cannot produce anti-ship missiles, air-to-air -air missiles, uh, torpedoes for submarines, even fuel. A lot of our Navy still runs on fuel. It doesn't have nuclear reactors the way aircraft carriers do. So we run out of all of this, and here's China. Right there, highly productive, really major arms factories, already building hundreds of missiles of various types over the past 15 years. It doesn't look good for the United States to win in a long war. Now, the, the other related issue is, will our allies be with us? All of our forces to defend the area of Taiwan involve going through Okinawa, other bases in Japan. What if the Japanese are attacked by China and they're told, keep out of this war? This is between us and the Americans and Taiwan, our own land. You Japanese keep out or we're going to punish you with another set of missile strikes. Well, the Japanese say, we don't care. We're for this war. We love Taiwan. You know, we don't care if you hit us again. We're going to let the Americans use our bases because Okinawa is the closest air base to Taiwan. That's a big question, isn't it? Same thing to the south of Taiwan. We would need the Philippines naval and air bases. The, some Filipino leaders say, yes, you can have them. Taiwan is like us. It's a vulnerable island. So most, you're most welcome. Other Filipinos say, no, this is, well, this is madness. China will attack us. So if the U.S. in a long war, six months or a year or more, if the U.S. is denied access to Japanese bases, denied access to Filipino bases, if our main forces on the island of Guam are also harmed by Chinese missiles and bombers that they've been flying around to show us we can attack Guam, we, then we don't have any support infrastructure and that's why I and other historians, you might say, have gone back to World War II to see, well, how did it happen then when the Japanese took such a large area mm -hmm. in, in just a few months, basically? And the answer was the Pacific Islands are the fallback. We had to start out in Australia, New Zealand, go north, take one by one these Japanese-occupied islands. A lot of people know these islands' names because their parent, they have a parent who was killed there. Um, no one knew the names. We hadn't built bases in advance. The Japanese had very carefully left to themselves the privilege of using these islands. So it took two years 
to reclaim these islands that could be used as air bases or depots, uh, naval storage areas. Only then could the war be brought to an end by a complete blockade of Japan. Can we do that again today? And there's been a lot of public discussion by the Pentagon. We need to focus on the Pacific Islands. There's only a few hints as to why, but I can tell you right now, by logic, it's if we have to fall back from the Japan ring, the first island chain, the Philippines, if we have no bases, the next set of bases are in the Pacific Islands. What do we find China doing there? Opening embassies, signing security agreements, building air bases. So the Chinese have obviously thought ahead as early as five or 10 years ago. We can take care of the Americans near China in the first island chain. What we have to be careful of now is making sure the Americans can't use the Pacific Islands like they did in World War II to come back into the war zone. So that also looks uh, not promising if you start thinking about what would a war with China look like. The United States has only started in the last two or three years, it began under President Trump actually, to start looking at access agreements, uh, just a whole set of measures that the Defense Department has announced in a, in a paper about Indo-Pacific. The word Pacific includes all these islands. So a lot of people don't think about war with China in, the, in terms of the the geographical scope it would be. But that's another factor. Now there's another issue that's come up in a lot of war games. This is a nuclear power. China's a nuclear power, minimum 300 warheads. What would they do with all this? Some smart people interested in nuclear strategy said, well, China writes a lot about deterrence through demonstration. Would they fire off a nuclear weapon someplace in the ocean just as a demonstration? Look what we can do, we're really serious about this, pull out, or would they not touch nuclear weapons? Would they consider them something that's only for uh, long-term strategic purposes? Or would they use nuclear weapons more readily, more easily than we might, because it's their territory in the case of Taiwan. So the whole nuclear balance is something else that's changing quite strikingly. It used to be everybody wrote articles about Chinese nuclear strategy they will never exceed two or 300 weapons. This is, China, this is Confucius, it's a philosophical principle. They don't think like we do or the Russians do uh, in terms of 5,000 or 10,000 nuclear warheads. Uh, everybody was in the academic world was very certain of this. I actually raised a contrarian view and next thing we know, the Defense Department has just announced in the past year China, within five to seven years, can and probably will go to 1,000 more warheads and then 1,500 warheads by 2035. By the way, 1,500 is an important number. It's our cap, our ceiling for strategic nuclear warheads is 1,500. The Russians have the same cap. It was negotiated. Chinese refused to come to the talks. President Trump invited them, actually. They refused to come, even at the last minute. So the nuclear balance is changing also against us. So when you line up these various trends, you can get yourself into a very pessimistic mood and you can start thinking about, well, gee, what's this guy's name, Mr. Ma on Taiwan? He's already been president. He's Western educated, fluent in English. He wants to run again. 
come back in January of next year, if he wins the presidency of Taiwan, his platform is to be friends with China. So that starts looking pretty good, right? Nuclear war, thousands or millions dead, versus a guy who's doing well in the polls in Taiwan wins, and he says, China's our friend. But I couldn't get into this in detail with our 33-year-old uh, radio host because of lack of time. But there, there's, I think there's probably some lessons from pre, the pre-World War II period to be learned with, with that kind of a mentality that you just described, I think, even though nuclear weapons obviously weren't in play. But the main thing is deterrence. And how do you deter a leadership in Beijing that may not think the same way we do? about the nature of the world. The Chinese view of what we're doing to them right now is very different from what we're actually doing. You can see this almost daily in Chinese propaganda. They say, number one, America is trying to overthrow the Chinese Communist Party. The Americans did this to the Soviet Union. They got Gorbachev to be their puppet. They overthrew the Soviet Union. And that was a great victory for America. They're trying to do that to China today. And the more we tell them that's not true, there's no such program. We're not trying to overthrow the government, the Communist Party of China. It's not U.S. policy. Never has been U.S. policy. They just don't believe it. So the second area is there's even there's a very recent uh, Chinese Foreign Ministry article. It's a long attack on America. It says America dominates the world in culture, economics, politics propaganda and war, use of armed forces to invade little countries. Quite a long article, very detailed. If they believe this, they see us as the evil, malevolent force that not only wants to overthrow the Communist Party of China, but wants to seize Chinese territory like they claim Taiwan is. So we're perceived by them as a demonic force. So let's say a little incident happens. One jet fighter pilot shoots down another jet fighter pilot. Our side is thinking, this is an accident. Let's get in contact. This actually happened in 2001 mm -hmm. when our plane crashed, had to crash land on Hainan Island. Mm -hmm. And our interpretation of our motives was magnanimous. This P-3 needed to get it to land safely uh, because of a Chinese fighter pilot's reckless behavior. They didn't see it that way. They essentially held our crew hostage, sent us a bill for a million dollars for it. If there's this incident involving shooting down two jet fighters, our leadership will probably think this is an accident. You know, we're all adults here. Let's contact each other. Maybe we have to pay something for the accident. Whose fault was it? Let's review the tapes. You, can we assume the Chinese view will be the same? Or will they see this as a hostile test which is how they saw our B-2 bombing <laughs> um, 25 years ago. Well, they see it as a test to which they need to respond in kind with another use of force against us. So an accident explodes into a really major uh, war within 24 to 48 hours. I'm not confident that the Chinese leadership has a lot of goodwill toward America and will think, oh, yeah, we understand this must have been an accident. You didn't intend it. 
I think more likely they will have an interpretation of us which is very unflattering. And unlike in the past when they couldn't do anything about it, now they'll be able to use force and intimidate the American leadership. So many things I want to ask you. First one, there were these joint naval exercises, largest ever with the Philippines. That, you're saying that that doesn't mean the Philippines and the Americans are on the same side. No, not at all. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about everything I said about war with China is hypothetical speculation based on war games and thinking about what might happen for extremely unlikely events. Mm -hmm. One chance in a million. So reporters and journalists somehow sometimes hear something about exercises or war games or something happened and they don't have the background to know what is the circumstances of what's happening. And they can usually approach two different kinds of sources. Sources that will tell them, don't worry about it, everything's fine, there's nothing to look at here, just move on to your next story. Or sources who can exaggerate and scare everybody and say, yes, World War III could happen tomorrow, and you better get ready because we're all going to die. We've got a school of thought says China is going to collapse. They're not going to be around as a great power more than a few years into the future. This view, when, it, when it's understood by our military planners, they will come to the civilian leaders and say, why should we plan against China? The place is going to collapse. So you see how the assumptions that you make for war games or studies or forecasts, the assumptions that you make whether it's a journalist or a military planner, depend on your initial thinking. Those who said Hitler just wants to straighten out the Versailles Treaty, and it's okay for him to take these few steps, they cause what we now, what we learn later from declassified German documents. This is very important for Chinese deterrence. Hitler and his generals had many, many conversations where the generals, and they've been preserved in records that were found later by the American army. The general said to Hitler, don't do this. If you do that, the French and British, and maybe getting together with the Poles, they will contain us and encircle us and harm Germany. This is a disaster if you do this. And Hitler said, I'm doing it anyway. You're wrong in your forecast of these reactions. The records show after Hitler would do these things, the generals backed down and began to not criticize him or advise caution. They were not deterred. It wasn't internal uh, German master planning. It was Hitler testing and then seeing he could get away with it. So if something like that is happening in China today, if, which is a big if, what is the message they're taking? from the reaction of the environment, that the Americans think China is going to collapse, <laughs> that we have to be alert to an American effort to overthrow the Communist Party, which doesn't exist. So by the way, are we going to create an effort to overthrow the Chinese Communist Party? There are ways to do that. It was done against the Soviet Union. Everything's been declassified now. If it's not being done, why not? It's, the issue ought to be discussed, and people should think about it. But have you seen any debate about let's overthrow the Communist Party? I have not. It's not a topic. 
You see how deterrence theory works? You have to understand both sides of the deterrence equation. Then you have to plug in how the two sides each see history. My next book is about how Chinese see history well, differently no, than I, we do. And I'm extremely interested in that book, but based on the example that you gave of you know Hitler testing and seeing what the reaction was, I would argue we have had decades of you know what you would call appeasement policy, right? Not any form of deterrence that I can see. So you know, it's certainly true. We have no organization to fight a war with China. If you look around the world at the Pentagon's structure, where are the admirals and generals working? What's the name of the command? What's their area of responsibility? You have commands in charge of the Middle East. You have the NATO planning staff that allocates weapon systems, makes war plans for NATO. You ha for treaties, like with Japan, we have exercises, we have scenarios, we know about this might happen, that might happen, here's what our Japanese and American forces will do together. You may have noticed where I'm leading you. Do we have a command in charge of fighting a war with China? No, we don't. Is there any kind of China command somewhere in the world? <laughs> Is there a admiral or general with four stars who can be brought before the press or testify in Congress, who will say, my duty is to prepare to win a war with China? The answer is no. We have a command in Honolulu up on a mountain called Camp Smith, used to have about 700 people total. They're in charge of exercises, planning, arms sales for about 35 nations, running all the way from India around to South Korea. To some degree, China falls in their domain, right? It's one of the 35 nations. But is it, is it the China Combat Command? No, there's no such thing. If you go in the building, which I have done many, many times, you think they're gonna see a sign saying China Division? <laughs> no, it's not set up that way. So we don't have a command for war against China or to deter China in existence in our whole U.S. government. <laughs> well, so this is a great opportunity. And some uh, people might say it's provocative to do such a thing. Dr. Pillsbury raised that issue. Oh, how stupid. If we have a command for fighting China, that will just provoke China and cause a war. How irresponsible can you get? Besides, we have a few China experts scattered around various places. They must know what they're doing. I think it's a fantastic question. I think it's a fantastic question and frankly deeply concerning. Since we're here at Heritage, you have a proposal on how to, how to counter the China threat. Not exactly. This exercise ordered by the new president of Heritage was not to create a new set of measures. It was to survey and canvas the best ideas that have been proposed so far, mainly in legislation by senators and House members. So there's also a couple of congressional commissions that have been producing recommendations for up almost 20 years in both cases. Um, one's called the China Economic Security Review Commission. Every year it produces about a 500-page report. Usually it averages from 70 to 80 recommendations. None ever gets implemented. The current one, for example, 
uh, is why don't we monitor American high-tech investment going into China? And most people are surprised. Oh, we don't do that? No, we don't. We have no idea what American high-tech firms are investing in China, state-of-the-art technology. So I and others went back through the last five years looking for ideas. We found a lot. We found 300 pieces of legislation, each one quite useful, quite thoughtful. Marco Rubio had a proposal, 2018. The White House should set up a technology czar to review technology about to be sent to China and stop it if needed. and should coordinate across all departments of government to, to do this. Technology czar was the title. Never passed. We put it in here. Another proposal discussed many times, never got more than 10 votes. American federal pension money should not go into China, especially to the company that builds uh, formations and little islands in the South China Sea. <laughs> Voted on, President Trump said do something about it. The people in charge refused, they got fired. It's a long story. Three years later, in technically speaking, federal pension money can still go to companies in China. To the CCCC. Which so is we the put, yes, the yeah. Chinese construction company. So yeah. that's in here. But this is not a sort of a new heritage plan or a new Pillsbury plan for China. It's pointing out why are there so many good ideas that are proposed that never happen, that are never implemented. And the pattern I saw as a former Senate staffer myself. I saw a lot of legislation, at least 200 examples of this, where the sponsor would introduce it, get a number on it, go on television. Today I introduced a bill to block the purchase of farmland by the Chinese Communist Party. Big news story. You'd cover it, right? Of course. At last, the CCP will be denied American farmland near sensitive installations. If you're a former staffer, you take a look at how many co-sponsors there are. When you want a bill to pass, you do a lot of work. You go around and get, in some cases, the majority of senators would sign up as co-sponsors. I did this as a staffer for Radio Free Asia, for broadcasts in Tibetan, uh, Uyghur, Cantonese, Mandarin. A lot of opposition. This is 1994. We got 40 co-sponsors, including Joe Biden and Teddy Kennedy, and all the liberals, and Jesse Helms, Orrin Hatch, a lot of conservatives. When the average senator sees that there's 40 co-sponsors from both sides, hey, I'll sign on to that. We got Radio Free Asia. Otherwise, it wouldn't exist. But today, that's not happening. You get senators and House members who have a sexy bill. They introduce it. Come on, be on Fox News or be on Epic Times, because you're a hero. You're going to stand up to the Chinese Communist Party. But is there a follow-up a month later, six months later, two years later? Senator or Congressman, whatever happened to that bill of yours? Well, uh, I don't know. Somebody blocked it. We had a very shocking incident. It's in this Heritage Foundation uh, list of recommendations that others have made in the past. There was a great concern that the U.S. Army's drones are being bought from China and they can send data back to China of U.S. Army operations. 
Lots of other people in America were buying from this one particular drone company in China. Legislation was passed, actually passed the House and the Senate, <laughs> banning purchase of Chinese drones by a variety of organizations. It was supposed to go in the National Defense Authorization Act. You know what happened? It mysteriously disappeared from the bill. So it was passed, president signed it. The drone termination legislation was removed. But the conference meeting, if you're a staffer, you know this, conference meetings are in secret. So we say in here, we don't know who took this out, but it passed both houses. <laughs> We'd like to see it put back in. Well, let me tell you. There's actually almost 100 examples in here well, of good ideas that have gone nowhere, but the people who've introduced the ideas get a lot of credit in the media. Let, let me cite one of the recommendations from there, which strikes me as you're speaking here. Cut off all Chinese regime lobbying dollars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I suspect that those lobbying dollars may have had something to do with what you're talking about. <laughs> well, that's just speculation. Of course. <laughs> it's the, what surprised me about our report. I thought we would find 10 or 15 examples of this. I th had the impression that a lot more legislation is passing than actually is. So the media may be taken in that, oh my God, the Congress at last is standing up to China. Because if you just watch television, you see all these members of the House and Senate bragging about their new legislation. So of course, I would think and others would think, we're doing a lot to stop the Chinese. Mm -hmm. What if it's not true? I run into people all over the world who think China's gonna collapse soon. <laughs> it's been found out that the Chinese themselves sometimes push this argument. Don't worry about us. We have, they don't say we're gonna collapse. They say we have so many problems with our one-child policy and cancer and pollution, the water table, the lack of agricultural production. You Americans don't need to worry about China. We'll be lucky to be around 20 years from now. I remember thinking to myself when I heard a Chinese official say that to an American delegation I was part of. I thought, you know, I've heard this before. In the meantime, the U.S. government has other threats that hit it right in the face. 9-11, the towers coming down, dead people, the discovery that there are Islamic terrorists all over the place who want to create terrorist incidents, kill Americans, blow up embassies. This is really vivid and really clear. We have to do something about it. And we did. I've seen various estimates. $2 trillion was spent counterterrorism. We built new organizations. We built Homeland Security. We built a global war on terror infrastructure. We took it really seriously. And we were right to take it as a threat. But just like Pearl Harbor, where it's vivid, American ships are being sunk by a Japanese snake attack. Sailors are drowning in those ships. 3,000 are dead. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to go, we have to do something now about Japan. But in the case of China, their strategy is very, very different. Deny that they seek hegemony. Deny that they seek domination. 
demonize any critic like the Falun Gong movement, attack them ruthlessly, smear them. Keep a list of critics of China around the world. Make sure they're never invited to visit China. Whole series of things which a friend of mine once called stealth superpower. A stealthy superpower that denies it's going to hurt you. So as we discussed, a lot of rhetoric, but not a lot of actual action, as we've discussed in the past. Yes. And the yeah. counter rhetoric is also very strong. It's not as though China lacks friends or cheerleaders in Washington, D.C., in the various states around the country. China has either a lobby or people who honestly believe that China is a healthy, good force in the world. And if you have a very weak effort to stop China, combined with a very powerful lobby and cheerleading force, and frankly, lots of uh, uh, good-hearted Americans who think everybody's like us, you know, they all want to have a constitution and democracy. This will break out in China someday. There's no need for us to do anything. What, the side that usually wins is the side to do nothing. <laughs> Fascinating. Well, you have one of the recommendations is crack down on illegal Chinese police operations in the mm -hmm. U.S. Mm -hmm. And it, it indeed looks like that recommendation is being taken up as we speak. Not exactly. Uh, again, this is from legislation. Others have raised this idea. And the police station, in the case of, Man of Manhattan, uh, this has been going on for many years. Somebody's tolerated it. <laughs> for, so for accountability, once a better number is known for how many of these police stations there are, once the set of arrests has been conducted, wouldn't it be interesting to find out why was this tolerated so long? Usually a foreign country, unless it's a friendly ally, would not be allowed to have its own police stations tracking dissidents and critics inside the U.S. and then sending them back, in this case, to China. It's unthinkable. Who approved this? Was it mayors and governors who were told, you know, the Chinese have this friendly office, it's above a noodle shop, you know, don't, should we worry about it, sir, or not? I think we should not, sir, because they're just hunting down criminals. That's the Chinese explanation of what they're doing. These are criminals we're trying to catch, you know, and we're going to take them home and save you Americans trouble. Who tolerated this? Where's the congressional hearing? I think accountability is going to be very important going forward accountability of what has been happening, who's been asleep at the switch, and for how long, and how many switches are, is someone asleep at? Now, people can say, no, that's just picking up old grudges. You know, we don't need to worry about the past. We have to look forward. But my contention is, if we don't understand how we got here, we're not going to pass legislation like this. And we're going to continue to talk tough about China, but do actually nothing. And the Chinese are very aware that that is exactly what's happening right now. Well, and, you know, talking about these theories about, you know, the Chinese economy being fragile. Like right now, for example, we know that there's, there's fragility in the economy. We know that uh, there's a huge housing uh, bubble, if you sure. will, right? All of this. At the same time, we know there's still 
massive investment from the U.S. through these index funds that you were and it's not even doing. tracked. We don't have the number. There's one guy in the private sector, Roger Robinson, who's come up with different estimates, as much as three trillion, three trillion or more. But the important thing is, there's no government law that says track this. We care. Same thing with farmlands. It was just revealed a couple of weeks ago that the Farm Service Agency on a voluntary basis can be told, you know, the Chinese or someone fronting for them is buying land. It's voluntary. <laughs> so if you don't want to tell the Farm Service Agency, you don't have to. Plus, these are often county level transactions. And counties don't necessarily say, oh my God, this is national security being threatened. I better call somebody in Washington. So the level of, what's a good word? I hate to say complacency, but it's just kind of keeping the level of perception of threat very low. This seems to be the Chinese, what I would call the Chinese secret formula that over time really pays off. And to counter it, it's the purpose of our exercise here, to pull together all this legislation that has not passed. In a way, it's to have a shock effect on the reader. Because if it's just one or two bills never passed, okay, let's work on them next year. But what if it's 100 that haven't passed, but members and senators have taken credit for it when they introduced it? That means we're looking at a disaster on our hands. We can't respond to China other than by talk, rhetoric, papers, articles, condemning the Chinese, which they simply laugh at. And they believe um, it kind of confirms their hope that the Americans are not going to wake up other than talking, of which we have plenty. I was watching a recent TV show, the guy called in and said, it sounds like from what your guest is saying, we're a nation of talkers. That's all we can do. And I saw the host kind of smile, like this is a pretty shrewd observation. So our hope is we're going to track these recommendations to see how many co-sponsors has it passed? Did it go into conference? Did it come out as law? Did the president sign it? Because it's fairly simple. Some of them, the legislation is no longer active. The person who introduced it just gave up hope. But if you would be interested, I'm happy to keep you informed what we're learning on what is actually happening. I would love that. And how does this relate to this index of strategic competition? You mm -hmm. mentioned your book, The 100-Year Marathon, earlier. That's something that you suggested in that book. And now I believe you're implementing it as part of the Heritage Program. Yes, part of the problem is I thought eight years ago when 100-Year Marathon came out, I thought it was pretty obvious if we see China as a competitor, at the minimum a competitor, we need an index to keep track of how we're doing. Supercomputers, a biotech, there's just a whole, I mentioned a number of categories because I, I knew from my government experience that this is not being done now at the minimum, National Science Foundation every few years publishes a report on how many people get degrees of various kinds. So I thought this would be immediately taken up. No legislation was written for eight years to do this. I went around to different government departments. I do have any kind of indicator system that could be made into an index 
because heritage does this for economic freedom. And heritage does it for, inter for American military strength, has various indicators, how we're doing in different categories and what the metrics are. For example, in the military metric, the reason it came out this year that America is quite weak is the number of combat hours American Air Force pilots put in has been declining. And there's a graphic. And there's a number of other measures of American military strength that are quite shocking when you see them all together. They're not assembled. The Pentagon does not produce a report on this. These are our weaknesses. And it probably should, but it doesn't. So the idea was, if no one else will do it, partly because it's very difficult to know which indicators to look at, why doesn't the Heritage Foundation start its own index of the strategic competition? And some of our initial findings have been quite shocking to me. We are falling behind in a number of high technology areas with, again, no press coverage. It's not a news story to say this. Um, people sort of know hypersonic missiles were falling behind, but they don't know about biotech, um, just a, a number of indicators that when put together in our report, I think will have quite a shock effect. They're superior to us in a number of areas where we thought we were superior. You know, it just, as I was thinking about this index of competition, or, you know, you're suggesting kind of an, an index of I guess, policy implementation, or at least attempts at policy implementation mm -hmm. as well. Um, I was, it was reminded of the Chinese regime's comprehensive national power measure, yes. right? Which again, you know, kind of makes a lot that, of sense. That's actually where I got the idea. Mm -hmm. I wrote a book in the year 2000 with a long, long chapter on how does China measure uh, national power? Mm -hmm because I was quite surprised in visits to China in the 90s. A lot of think tanks were producing these reports, looking ahead 20 or 25 years. What rank will China be? What rank will uh, United Kingdom or France, Germany, Japan? And they had very fine-tuned analysis of their indicators. And they had debates among themselves. And I came back to the US saying, the Chinese are doing all this. Uh, what's our counterpart? Certainly, we must have this kind of measurement. And I was told, no. Nobody cares, because we're going to be number one forever. So we have no need to measure how other competitors are doing against us. As we've discussed before, you know, the Chinese regime is very focused on these unconventional warfare type methods. You know, so my, my question to you is, is all of this, as you've been describing, you know, an elaborate way of subverting the US, is this part of the Chinese regime's plan, in your view? <laughs> Well, to, to, to make, to, to, to make. The Chinese say they have no plan. They translated my book into Mandarin, perfect translation. They classified it secret just to be read by party members. Look at this guy, you know, he's claiming we have some kind of strategy. And they did counter propaganda against the 100 year marathon. I collected some of the articles, you're welcome to them. Basically, the argument was, we Chinese have no plan. We don't want to be number one. Our constitution says we will never seek hegemony. <laughs> and anyone who says these kind of things has no basis for it. So 
I soon found critics of the book in the United States writing book reviews saying China has no plan, China doesn't want to be number one, and we're just muddling through. And Pillsbury's material that he cites is all just anecdotes. Well, that's not true. There are 60 pages of footnotes to this book with large numbers of citations to Chinese materials. But the critics simply ignored that. So you have, you have at least one author, and, I, and I'm, now I'm no longer alone, but a few of us sound the alarm. We can't succeed. Our voices are too few, and they're countered by this uh, group of cheerleaders who say the opposite. And one of my examples I put in the afterword for this report I heard from people who were with President Trump when he went down to see Xi Jinping in Buenos Aires. And the meeting began. They sit down. There's always the same dialogue. Our custom is you go first. No, you go first. So Trump got Xi Jinping to go first. Xi Jinping said, I think you should know, President Trump, we are not pursuing a 100-year marathon. Use exact words from the title of my book. We do not seek global dominance. We do not have any plan to replace America. And some more things concerning the book. Now, four people who were there on the American team told me about this. I didn't hear it myself, so I'm not disclosing a, a Trump-Xi Jinping meeting. But I heard it from four people who were there. And some of them have put it in their own books, by the way. John Bolton put it in his book. Jared Kushner put it in his book. Peter Navarro put it in his book. So what is happening here? Now, President Trump is the kind of guy who, if Xi Jinping says, I don't have these plans, do you think he's gullible and he believes it? So, oh, I'm very glad to hear that. No. For President Trump, it strengthened his view that this book, The 100-Year Marathon, must have something in it that the Chinese don't want us to think about. And one of the things was the index of strategic competition. But there are many other recommendations I made in the book, none of which have been implemented. In some cases, partially implemented. But how am I going to respond to the China collapse people or the Chinese communist? Another really big one, I'm sure you know this, is the Chinese Communist Party is going to reform itself and turn into a uh, bipartisan, you know, turn into a democratic system. Oh. And there are Chinese authors who advocate this, but they, it's, it's like they're either in jail or they became exiles or they got real quiet. I have a section in the book where I talk about what they call the constitutional debate, where a number of professors, one famous professor at Beijing University, said, you know, the Constitution should be above the Communist Party. And Xi Jinping at one point seemed to endorse that, but then it all reversed and they began to say no, the legal system and the Constitution are below the Communist Party. But even this debate, this professor, by the way, was not invited on TV programs. He should have been a hero. People should have gone to him in Beijing, interviewed him. He's writing for public uh, sort of national debate magazines. So he would have granted the interview. Our media ignored him.
He's like nobody. Well, they were afraid they'd get kicked out if they cover it. Well, at that point, the system was debating this. Mm -hmm. Later on, when they say it's subversion to argue this way, uh, yes, it would be much more dangerous. But that's one topic I cover in my recommendations for 100-year marathon, that we need to pay attention to debates inside China, especially to be able to feed back to China. This is what's happening at the top. Most people did not know in China about this constitution versus the party debate. We have Radio Free Asia to do that, but we made a mistake, including me, when we created Radio Free Asia. We're, we're modeling it on Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty. Radio Free Europe by Congress created a large research staff and publications, including a weekly. Lots of money. People all over the world would cite Radio Free Europe research report says this, and it'd be quotations from speeches and articles. I don't know what the reason was, maybe just lazy. When we created Radio Free Asia, especially the broadcasts in, in Chinese, we didn't create a research center. So if you visit Radio Free Asia in DC, you will see a huge area where all the broadcasters are broadcasting. You will not see a weekly report on new developments in communist China. You will not see um, original research on things that are happening. I think that should be fixed. Hmm. I'm sure Radio Free Asia would like the additional money, but once again, it would take legislation, it would take some focus. People might say, oh, we don't need a research report of what's going on in China. I maintain we do because there are debates, and I think Xi Jinping himself, every now and then you get the impression he's worried about something. And this British book by Roger Garside called Coup, how the prime minister could overthrow Xi Jinping, that got their attention. So next thing we know, the prime minister is not continuing in office. <laughs> and that taught me there's, some, there's probably a debate going on around Xi Jinping, but where is our media coverage of it? Well, in the Epoch Times. Hopefully you can interview Xi Jinping's advisors. <laughs> we'll, we'll have to give it a shot. Um, so is your policy recommendation to start passing these pieces of legislation that you reference in this report? There's a book about the Heritage Foundation by Lee Edwards called The Power of Ideas. And it points out how beginning 50 years ago, Heritage Foundation executives tended to be House and Senate staffers. They knew how to do legislation, but they complained because the left had the Brookings Institution and a couple other think tanks to help them draft legislation. The conservatives did not have that. They had it themselves. So the idea of heritage from the beginning has been help legislation get drafted and considered in a friendly way with ideas and research. Because otherwise, there's no support system for them. So these recommendations are feeding back to current members of Congress, and especially their staffs, from people at Heritage who, like me, are former Senate staffers or House staffers, the long-term head of 
president and founder of Heritage, Ed Fulner, uh, helped create something called the Republican Study Committee. There's something on the Senate side called, which still exists, the Senate Steering Committee. Both of these are active in China policy. But our idea is having this together kind of like a guidebook. It's not fresh new recommendations from Heritage, but it's saying look at what could be done. And it's extremely specific about each recommendation and how to implement it. So we will know within about two years how many of these action items have actually passed. House and Senate have been signed by the president. It's going to be very obvious. So as we finish, your overall thesis in this interview is that we are not awake to the China threat as a society. How no, no. The society is awake. The polls show that high percentage of Americans are very concerned about the China threat. No, I'm talking about members of Congress who don't pass legislation. I'm talking about county government that doesn't report Chinese farmland purchases. These are government people. This, this collection of recommendations is not for the broad American society to read and go, gee, I like those. No. This is a handbook for insiders. You are going to be judged. It's, people are going to know a year or two from now if your legislation passed or not. Is the Army still buying drones from China? Or did the legislation pass banning that? It's going to be yes or no. And it's going to be graphic. So it's not for American society at all. We're not going to publish this as a, you know, 100,000 copies, please read it. No, this is a very uh, sophisticated guide to how is our government doing on China. State, local, Congress, we have some things in here, very few, that are executive branch White House uh, jurisdiction. So no, you misunderstand me. If you think this is some sort of recommendation, please read this you know, at your university textbook or something. No, 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 no. This is designed to alert Washington, D.C. insiders. If you fail to take actions with these, this legislation, people are going to know. The donors to your campaign, as an interesting article recently, 40% of the time of members of the House of Representatives, 40% is used to meet with donors to raise money. Now, if the donors start saying, gee, you introduced that legislation, but it never passed, I think I'll pass on my $5,000 check. If that starts getting around, that's really bad for those who are what we used to call, when I was a Senate staffer, we, were, we had a, a phrase, there are two kinds of senators, showboats and workhorses. The workhorses were not very well known publicly, but they got a lot of legislation passed. The showboat's self-explanatory. To the person that's watching that is in the broader society that might feel a bit despondent after mm -hmm. watching this interview, you know, and, and very, very quickly, what is your recommendation to them about how to respond? We've got to have accountability. What is the government and the Congress actually doing about China? Very few people in America are actually involved with the government. Uh, there's been interesting uh, efforts to find out how many people ever vote, number one. What kind of elections do they vote in? State, county, school board, national primary. 
And the third thing is probably the most important. How many American citizens actually donate money to a candidate at any level? County, state, mayor, national. There's a website you can go to called opensecrets.com. Put in somebody's name, put in Michael Pillsbury. You can see every donation I've made for the last 20 years over about $200. You can see it right there. So you can't secretly make donations, at least not for direct funds. But it turns out apparently less than 2% of the American public make any kind of campaign contribution to a political election. This is amazing to me. If you're a donor and you know a member could do better if you remind him or her, that's the key to what viewers who otherwise would be despondent, they could say, well, I can do something about this. Well, Michael Pillsbury, it's such a pleasure having you on again, and I'm sure we'll have you back. You'd like a progress report That's right. on these various indicators and whether the legislation actually is passing. Okay, I promise to keep you informed. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you all for joining Dr. Michael Pillsbury and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Mm -hmm.